So my experience with kids, like the ones who just went out, and even a little bit younger than that, is kids get excited with anticipation for things that they look forward to, like a vacation, like Christmas, or like the school year ending. Like there's this just buzzing excitement when Christmas or vacation are coming up. When I was a little kid, six, seven, eight, I had great excitement for our annual vacation. One of our annual vacations was to a wonderful place known as Brownsville. Brownsville was in western Pennsylvania. It was a coal mining town. It's not the sort of place anybody should go on vacation. <laughs> but for some reason, I was excited about it as a little kid because there were all sorts of things wrapped into it for me as a little kid. It involved time with my grandparents who I loved. It involved traditions, things like my grandmother would buy us the kind of sugar cereal that we were not allowed to have at home. It involved swimming in a river, which I didn't do anywhere around here. I don't know if I should have done it up there. And it involved an annual trip to Kennywood Park, an amusement park in the Pittsburgh area. Literally on the night before the, the departure morning to go to Brownsville, I was excited. And then a couple days into our time with my grandparents, I was excited again because we would go to Kennywood the next day. That sort of excited giddiness we associate with kids. Most of us are too blasé and cool to do that anymore, right? We've gotten over the excitement of a trip or a vacation or Christmas. The psalmist is supposedly an adult, but he sounds a lot like a kid when he writes in Psalm 122 about being told that they're going to go somewhere, a version of vacation, if you would. He writes at the beginning of Psalm 122, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. I was glad, I rejoiced, I was excited. He's overflowing with excitement. For what? Well, for him, it was something we've talked about the past couple of weeks. The songs of ascent, Psalm uh, 120 through 134, were songs that were sung and prayed by pilgrims when they went to Jerusalem for their, uh, for their chance to worship together as the people of God. The Bible prescribed three times that you were supposed to go to Jerusalem to worship at Passover in the spring, at Pentecost 50 days later, and then again at Tabernacles in the fall. Now, it was probably pretty impractical for most people to go three times a year, especially if they lived any distance away. Everything you did had to be on foot. They didn't have hotels that could house everyone. You had to make all the arrangements for a multiple-day camping trip for the entire family to go to Jerusalem to worship. It was a huge effort but probably most villages or clans would try to go at least every so often. But think about the organization that would be involved in like taking this entire group right here, if you take a clan or a village, and say, okay, we're going to leave next week and go on a 10-day on-foot camping trip. Let's get it organized. And on top of that, they had people that had to stay behind because somebody had to stay behind to care for the, the animals, to care for those who were unable to travel because of age or sickness. So it was a very rare thing to go on this journey. And most likely, when they did it, would have been at Tabernacles, which was the end of the harvest season, because it was the, finally the time at the end of the, the farming season when you could take a break. Pretty much every culture has a harvest celebration because it's the time when vacation happens. It's like the end of the school year. You could finally let down and just celebrate. Graduates are doing that right now, collectively joining in their celebration. That's essentially what the people were doing. They were collectively saying, okay, we're done with our work. Let's go to Jerusalem, not, not only with our entire community, but the entire nation. 
to celebrate, to rejoice in the good harvest that we've just had. And on top of the harvest, they were also going to experience God. They went with the anticipation that if you are going to experience the divine, if you want to meet God, if you want to hear from him, there's only one place you can go, and that was Jerusalem. James May, one of the commentary writers, said, there's an anticipation of the nearness of the presence of God. He's anticipating meeting God, and he is excited, overflowing to get there. He wants to go and worship God. Now, childlike giddiness to go and worship God seems also a little bit out of place for us in this culture that we live in. Let's, I want to talk just a little bit about that idea of worship, which is what's behind what he's trying to do here. So worship, at its bare root, is acknowledging God as the God and your God, right? Worship is acknowledging God as the God and your God. And we've talked about in here that all of life is an opportunity for worship that you can work and eat and relax and play by yourself with others, and it can be worship. It can be worship because we can live with a constant awareness that God is with us, a constant awareness of God whether you're working or playing by yourself or with others. And that's essentially what worship means, living with an awareness of God at every moment. But in Christian circles, we also use the term worship in certain Christian circles of what we're doing right now. It's used of a Sunday gathering of people who believe in God, who come together to sing, to read the Bible, to pray, to confess sins, to enact certain rituals, all pointed to God. It's us collectively gathering together to acknowledge and consider the presence of God. 60, 90 minutes, 120, depending on the tradition that you come from, of acknowledging God as our God, as the God. So the psalmist has this view of going to the house of God, and he goes with excitement, with giddiness, with anticipation. And I wonder how often you approach a Sunday morning with that same mentality. What tends to be our view of going to the house of the Lord to worship? Obligation? Maybe anticipation. What I've found is that there's a challenge, especially those of us who have been in the church for a while, of drifting into cynicism or criticism. There's a tendency in all of our hearts to be cynics or critics. The cynical side of us, it comes from people, and many of you I know have experienced this, have been hurt by the church. People in the church, pastors, priests, some of you have been very badly hurt by the church. And others, because of your experience in Christian circles, have just seen the negative side of Christians. I mean, you don't want to be around them. You know what they're like. And so we, we pull back into a cynical nature when we're around Christians or a church because we want to avoid, protect ourselves. We tend to doubt the emotions that others are expressing. We scoff at rituals that people enact. We tend to have a mocking and skeptical side. This is me, actually. My side is the cynical side. I've been around church long enough to be a, a skeptic cynic. I have to be aware that that's a part of my natural tendency. Similar to being a cynic is to be a critic, right? There's also a side of us that wants to always criticize everything. And I've found the longer you've been in the church, the longer you've been a Christian, 
the more likely you are to be an inward-focused sort of person. And you become a critic of everything the church is doing, the music, the people, the programs, the lack thereof, because in your inward focus, it's about me. It's about me. And if the church isn't meeting my needs, then what's it here for? It's very different to have that childlike description that the psalmist seems to have. There's an exuberance and a joy. Now, the problem is when I think about the the psalmist having exuberance and joy, I think about a childlikeness that I don't want to have. It's what we laugh at when you see Will Ferrell's characters. Like in Elf, he's so excited at the world's greatest cup of coffee. He walks past a sign in New York City that says world's greatest cup of coffee. He walks into the diner. Ah, Hey, congratulations, guys. You guys made the world's greatest cup of coffee. He is so excited for them. Then he goes on, gets a job at a department store, and when the store manager says, hey, Santa's coming tomorrow, he starts jumping up and down for joy because Santa is coming tomorrow. Everything is just guileless, naive, exuberant joy. We laugh at that. We don't want to be that. And so whatever it takes to not look like that, we'll do. We're too sophisticated and cool when we come in a place like this to get into it. Some people in a place like this or any church setting will, will worship with physical posture. They'll raise their hands. In other settings, after communion, they might genuflect and kneel. And what do we do? We sit on the back and sort of judge that. They're singing really loudly and out of tune. I'd rather just be silent. But I think that what the psalmist is inviting us to is a childlike earnestness in your faith. Not emotionalism, not looking like elf, but authentic desire for God. And if you authentically and earnestly desire him, it will affect your voice and your body and your approach to a place like this or your whole life. Because I don't think worship is about just church and on Sundays, but all of life, right? The only way in my experience to overcome my lack of joy or thankfulness, to to become joyful and thankful and not a critic, a cynic, somebody who's negative, is a worship of and focus on God. Because if I'm not worshiping and focusing on God, I'll be worshiping and focusing something else. An overly self-conscious person is an under-God-conscious person. Most of us tend very quickly towards that self-conscious and not God-aware. But ultimately, what I'm talking about here is a matter of your heart. Worship is volitional, meaning your will, your heart, your desires have to be in it. Eugene Peterson, in his commentary on this psalm, said, you worship because you want to, you desire to. It's something in your heart. You cannot be forced to worship God or anything else. So with two of my kids, my sons, I'll say I encourage them to listen to pre-1990s music. And by encourage, I mean I made them an offer they couldn't refuse. I wanted them to listen to music from before 1990, and I didn't care whether it is, I I don't care whether it's jazz or punk or Baroque or Motown, it really doesn't matter. 
Now, I can force them, by whatever means I'm using, to get them to listen to music that is pre-1990, but I cannot get them to like it, right? I can't force them to like jazz or Baroque or Motown. Any more than you could, you could force me to listen to opera or country. I'm not gonna like it. <laughs> and the same is probably true with you about a certain type of music, right? You can be forced to listen to it. It doesn't mean you're gonna like it. See, behavior can be legislated, but worship, because it's a matter of your heart, cannot be legislated. So think about this, right? Most of us don't go around speeding when we drive. Why? Because there are laws against it. Now, let's say there weren't laws against speeding. How fast would you want to drive if you could? That's where your heart is. <laughs> a couple weeks ago, we did confirmation with adults and teenagers, and when I'm talking to the teenagers who are going to be confirmed, confirmation, by the way, is the adult profession of your faith. You as an individual saying, I believe this. What I do when I talk to the teenagers who want to be confirmed is I talk to them directly and say, if you are doing this because all your friends are doing it or your parents are forcing you, don't do it. Don't get confirmed on that basis. Do it because you desire to. This is where your heart is. And my guess is if you're in middle school or high school, some of you, probably very few of you, are here because of force. <laughs> because your parents legislated it. No, you're in this family, you have to be here. And that might be the case. But you don't really want to be here, right? You, know, you can't, there's no way out of it, but you, you have to be here. Sort of an obligation thing. You don't want to be here, but ultimately, your heart is going to be the teller. Showing up at a church doesn't make you a Christian, right? You know that. Where your heart is, is what God is looking for. And if you are in middle school or high school, eventually you'll come a time when you can do whatever you want. And it's really when you leave high school, when you leave high school, that your true worship will be revealed, whether that's Christ or something else. So how would you even know what you truly worship? It's very simple. We've talked about it here before. What do you think about freely? What does your mind wander to when it's free to wander to? What do you spend time or money on effortlessly? What do you love doing and would keep on doing if there weren't other constraints in this life? What you do and love to do is what you worship. And what you truly worship is whatever you most love. What does the psalmist most love? It's kind of strange. He loves a city. We read this in Psalm 122, verses 2 through 5, which reads like a love letter to a city. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. So verse 1 is, I, my, my friends, my family said, let's go to Jerusalem. Verse 2 is, we're here. I can't believe I'm here in the city of Jerusalem. And then verse 3, 4, and 5, Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. He describes Jerusalem with a description that might be like somebody who's in love with a woman, describing her beauty and her character. 
He talks about her buildings in verse three and all the tribes gathered together, the community that's built around this. And then he talks about the government, the justice, the king. He's describing this with, as one pastor talked about it, excited, thrilled, bubbling over. He describes Jerusalem almost like a she that he's in love with. And some of you have had that experience of being in love. You know what that's like when you're in love. It's the focus of your mind, your emotions, your desires. Other things become less important when you're in love. It's possible that during that spring semester of my last year in college when Sarah and I were dating, it's possible that I was so in love that I, that I might have even skipped a class or two. It's possible that I ignored a friend or three because the thing that mattered most was all I was after and things like class, who can do class when and you see that in the psalmist describing Jerusalem. Jerusalem, you see, was the physical embodiment of his spiritual passion, his first love. And so he's excited to go there, and he's overflowing once he's there. It would almost be like Lambeau Field for a Packers fan, or New York City if you're a, a fashionista and shopper, or Comic-Con if you're a nerd. When you just can't wait to get there, and when you're there, you are so excited. All your dreams are bound up in this place. And he wants the best for his love. So he prays for his love's well-being in verses 6 through 9. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. He repeats the word peace and security, which are basically the same word. It's shalom for peace and shalah for security. And he puts them back and forth. Those are his hopes is that Jerusalem will be a city filled with shalom, with shalah, with peace and security. And of course, we've talked about shalom here before, right? Shalom is not just a cessation of war and violence. It is wholeness, flourishing, harmony or union with God, with creation, with other people, and even with yourself. So all of this psalmist's hopes are bound up in Jerusalem because he sees that if Jerusalem has wholeness and shalom, that he and his whole family and his whole nation has wholeness and shalom. Shalom is one of those words, again, we've said it a lot, but I wanna go back to it because I think it's a Hebrew word that has a whole bunch of ideas behind it that it would be worthwhile to hold on to in our own way of thinking. Christians often highlight salvation but I actually think shalom is a better term that incorporates the same idea. Because when Jesus saves, he doesn't just save us from something, save us from sin and Satan and death. He also gives new life, wholeness, healing, peace with God, peace with creation, peace with ourselves. Shalom captures all of that. Salvation from and new life to. Deliverance, and healing. And Eugene Peterson, in another place, noted every time Jesus healed, forgave, or called someone, we have a demonstration of shalom. Jesus walks around, and wherever he goes, he's affecting wholeness, healing, forgiveness, calling people to follow him, which is what they're made to do, restoring their broken bodies or broken spirituality. He's giving them shalom. Shalom. 
Shalom covers all of life as it was intended to be and will one day be in eternity. Shalom is the description of Eden and the description of heaven and involves the very presence of God in all of his glory. This is why the psalmist wants to go to Jerusalem because he knows there is where God is and there in the presence of God is where you experience wholeness. The presence of God is a common theme throughout the Bible and it's part of the longings throughout the Old Testament. It starts back in Eden, if you know the story, right? So in Eden, Adam and Eve are there and they are in the presence of God. You know what's interesting is we actually, if, if we just take the story there, we don't know how long Adam and Eve are in the garden at peace. Are they there for two days before they eat the fruit or 20 years? We actually don't know. But for a season, how long of a season, they were experiencing the fullness of life as it was meant to be. No fear and anxiety, no sickness or tears, no strife, union with God, with creation, with each other, and with themselves. Harmony, integration, life as it was meant to be. But in breaking apart from God, they announced their desire for life apart from him. And of course, the end of Genesis 3 is the Lord drives them out of Eden, away from his presence, where there is no shalom. The rest of Genesis unfolds as a hunger and a desire for God to show up. And the, the theologians talk about it as theophany, the manifestation, the physical manifestation of God at a local time and place. And you see this in a couple of episodes, but it's sporadic. In Genesis 15, a, a torch it appears, a fire, and God is revealing himself to Abraham. In Genesis 18, there's three strangers that walk up to Abraham, and the one in the middle is the Lord. In Genesis 32, Jacob wrestles with somebody in the middle of the night, and the indication is it's the Lord showing up. But essentially, for hundreds of years, God is not present, not with his people as they go off into slavery, until the Lord shows up again in a burning bush, calling Moses, in plagues of judgment, in fire and cloud as he leads Israel out in the wilderness, in the tabernacle, the temporary temple that they built and wandered around with for 40 years, until eventually under Solomon, a temple was built in Jerusalem, the city of God. And that temple was a physical building where they believed Yahweh, the creator of the world, existed. That's where he took up residence. The temple was the only place where you could find God in all the world. And so the psalmist has this prayer for shalom because it's part of his idealistic longings for God's presence to finally come as it was meant to come. And for centuries, people prayed this prayer, praying for the shalom of Jerusalem, for God to bring his peace through that city. But I think they were falling short because even back then, it was not, Jerusalem was not meant to be the end, the telos, the goal. They wanted an idealized Jerusalem where everything would end up in that city. But what they really needed was God, not a city, not a government, not a temple. And of course, in the Christian story, God came to Jerusalem as a pilgrim, just like the psalmist did. 
But when God came as a pilgrim to Jerusalem, he came not with joy and excitement, but with sorrow and lament. A thousand years later, Jesus is walking to Jerusalem in Luke 19. And this is what we read. And when Jesus drew near and saw the city of Jerusalem, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. He's quoting from Psalm 122. But now they are hidden from your eyes because you did not know the time of your visitation. He greets the city, but his greeting is one of lament and sorrow and tears. When God finally did come to bring shalom, the people were unwilling to worship him. And yet God in his amazing grace brought shalom through his own death. In the psalmist day, you actually had to go to Jerusalem to get to God. But Jesus did everything Jerusalem could not. We just sang about it. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Jesus was rejected so that we could be accepted. He experienced disintegration, driven out from the Father so that we could experience shalom. You know, poll upon poll says that people in America today are less religious, but actually no less spiritual than they were in decades past. Meaning, there's less involvement in organized religion, churches, synagogues, but there's still an active seeking after the spiritual and spirituality. People are searching for God or a God or some God, and many will identify themselves as on a spiritual journey of sorts. So where do you go to experience God? Even Christians do the same thing. We go in search of spiritual experiences. Where would you go to find God? Intentional pilgrimage, which pilgrimage is a journey to find a place where God might be present, can actually be a good thing, but you don't need to go on pilgrimage to find God. You don't need to go to Jerusalem to find God. God desires to meet you, to dwell with you, for you to know him. All you need is to be reconciled to God. Admit that you need Jesus that by nature you're not at peace with God. The Bible makes this clear that when you trust in Christ, God's Spirit dwells in you. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, You are God's temple. God's Spirit dwells in you. Think about that for the implications of somebody like the psalmist in Psalm 122 who is so excited to go to Jerusalem because that's the only place in the entire universe where you can see and experience God. And a thousand years later, Paul in writing in 1 Corinthians says, you and you and you are a temple. God wants to take up residence in you. And when the people of God are gathered as the church, we're like a living, breathing Jerusalem the city of God here, where God is present. You don't have to go somewhere to find God. He came here to find you. And that's part of our calling, 
to experience and embody the God who dwells in us and offers us shalom. And to bring that loving grace to everyone around us. You know, if you came here today and it's a Father's Day and that's one of your least favorite days because you didn't have a father who showed up and didn't experience the loving grace that some people seem to experience in fathers, the good news in what this is telling us is that we have a God who came after us and loves us more deeply than even the best father possibly could. That he wants to be our father, to not only dwell in us, but to be with us, to show us his love, his healing, his wholeness, his forgiveness, his shalom. You can go in search of a father <laughs> or you can find the father. Let's pray. God, we are people that do not live in shalom. We deal with cynicism and criticism and negativity, hardness, and a constant desire to worship everything but you. Yet you and your loving kindness came to us. You arrived, you died for us, and in Jesus you offer us yourself to dwell in us, to love us, to be with us. Give us eyes to see and hearts willing to bow down and worship. Amen.